Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark Irving. I serve as one of the pastors here. And I also have the distinct privilege this morning of serving as your tour guide as we um, jump back into the book of 1 Peter. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 4 today. And this is a sermon series that we've given the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. It's a first century letter from one of the original guys that followed Jesus while he was here on earth, a guy named Peter. And here in chapter 4 of his letter, Peter turns his attention to a subject that we as Americans don't really like to discuss. In fact, I'd say that as a culture, we're very ill-equipped to handle this subject. And that subject is this, how to suffer, how to suffer. You know, as comfort-loving Americans, we spend significant time and resources trying to figure out how not to suffer, right? I mean, just look at our advertisements. Every single advertisement, or not every single, but probably the majority of the advertisements aimed at you and me on TV and social media and et cetera, is, is some type of advertisement that is, is giving you some kind of product or experience that's going to make your life what? More comfortable. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, boy, I really hope I learn how to suffer well today? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, then. Well, that proves my point. Um, how to suffer is, <laughs> suffer is a subject that we tend to avoid. We tend to sweep under the rug. We, we don't really want to talk about it or think about it. You know, I went all the way through grade school, never had a single class on this subject. I graduated from high school, but it wasn't covered there either. Four years of college, nope, didn't learn about it there. Four years of postgraduate work, getting my master's degree in theology, not one single credit hour devoted to the topic of how to suffer. And yet, suffering, in some form or fashion, is something that every single one of us will experience in life. In this broken world, it's not a matter of if you will suffer, it's a matter of when. You know, ever since the events recorded for us at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, this world in its present condition, in its present broken condition, is a suffering factory. Now, for some of you, life is going great right now. But I would venture a guess that the majority of you are feeling at least some of the side effects, some of the backwash of the sin in the garden when mankind rebelled against God. You're you're feeling the effects of living in a broken world that isn't how it was meant to be. Everything around us is tainted by sin and that original rebellion of mankind against God. Perhaps you're experiencing financial or vocational stress of some sort this morning. Perhaps it's pain from a fractured relationship. Perhaps it's a fractured neck. I won't name any names. Or a troublesome health issue. Perhaps it's the grief of the loss of a loved one. Perhaps you've been misunderstood or maligned in some form or fashion. The fact of the matter is... Suffering will be a reality for all of us if it is not a reality already at this present moment. So as we dive into 1 Peter chapter 4 together, my hope is that today's message, as well as next week's message on the second half of chapter 4, will be really practical sermons 
that if applied can make a huge difference in your life and also the life, the lives of those that you come in contact with on a day-to-day basis and for years to come. Because one of the most important topics that we can learn about is how to suffer well and also how not to suffer, how, what not to do when we suffer as well. So what to do when we suffer and what not to do when we're suffering. And Peter's going to help us with this here in chapter 4 of his letter. So if you've got your Bibles, I'll go ahead and open them up to 1 Peter and let's dive into chapter 4 starting with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. The words are going to be up on the screen behind me. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read from God's word together this morning? First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter highlights two potential paths you can take when you encounter suffering in this life. One is the well-worn path of sinning. It's the path of of medicating pain by seeking pleasure. And Peter points this out in this path out in verse 3, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He kind of makes a long list there. I'm pretty sure there's a textual variant in one of the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that reads Lower Broadway on Saturday nights. But, uh, but what's ironic is, is that while these types of sinful activities may succeed in temporarily numbing the pain of suffering, they always succeed in permanently multiplying suffering and pain, not only in the lives of the participants, but in the lives of those around the participants. How many of you all have ever been blessed by someone living for their passions and reckless sensuality and drunkenness. Let me see a show of hands. Boy, you just threw up on my foot. That was so blessed. Yeah, that was such a blessing. No, no. In fact, the opposite is often true. This is why we often use the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Have you heard that before? Hurt people, hurt people. It's just a reality. In attempts to numb the pain of suffering in this broken world, hurt people more often than not end up causing more pain and suffering. Some of the deepest pain in my life has come from individuals who are trying to cope with their own pain and ended up hurting me in the process. Hurt people often end up hurting people. 
So suffering can lead to sinning, but as we will explore together today, Peter calls us as believers in Jesus, followers of Christ, to the opposite strategy, the opposite response to suffering in our passage this morning. Our suffering as Christians can and should lead to serving instead of sinning. You know, it's a sad and common reality that hurt people hurt people, but it's a beautiful and redemptive reality that hurt people can help people as well. You know, some of the people that have blessed me the most in life have been people that have gone through deep, deep personal pain and suffering. They've walked through it, and now they're using that pain to empathize with and to minister to people around them because they get it. They get it. Instead of turning bitter in the midst of their pain, they, they grew better. Instead of sinning, they turned towards serving. Instead of medicating their pain in my life and the lives of those around them, they alleviated pain by becoming conduits of servant-hearted love and empathy and hospitality and blessing and redemption and healing and grace. I don't know if you've ever experienced someone like that in your path. People like this have unselfishly come alongside of me in some dark moments in my life. They've encouraged me deeply and pointed me to the hope that's found in Jesus. So how do we become more like those who serve and help others rather than those who sin and hurt others? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's dive into our text today, beginning with verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Forever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You know, the first instruction that Peter gives us for how to suffer well in this life is to adopt or arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus. We need to take on the mindset of Jesus when he suffered on earth. And what was that mindset? Well, it's stated very plainly here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't run away from suffering. He embraced it as his reality. Jesus didn't live for his own will, but for the will of his Father. You know, before going to the cross, what did Jesus do? He prayed and said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Right before he gave his life as a ransom for many, as he said he would on the cross the next day. The Apostle Paul expands on this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, where we read this. Having the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a, what? Servant. Servant-heartedness was the mindset of Jesus in the face of suffering. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, Peter says. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, time out. What does that mean? If you suffer in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. What, what does Peter mean by that? I've suffered a bit in my day, but I can tell you right now, I have to not totally ceased from sin. Ask anybody close to me, and they'll tell you I'm not a perfect man. Peter isn't saying here that you somehow magically stop sinning if you suffer. To understand what Peter is saying here, we need to remember the context into which Peter is writing this epistle, this letter. 
He's writing to first century Christians who are beginning uh, to experience persecution for their faith in Jesus. They're getting pushed back from their culture. They're beginning to be maligned because of their Christian beliefs and practices. And they're, they're ex- so they're experiencing, in summary, religious persecution. And why are they being persecuted? Well, because they haven't become chameleon Christians. They're not blending into the culture around them. They're, they're standing out from their culture, refusing to blend in. Namely, instead of turning to sin to medicate the pain that they're experiencing, instead of turning to sinning as a coping mechanism in this life with suffering that comes along with it, they're turning to Jesus. And because of this, they're being maligned by their friends and family members who are still on the path of using debauchery to medicate their pain. When these early Christians didn't participate in this, the sensuality that was common in that culture, the drunken parties, their non-participation implicitly condemned those who were still using sin to medicate their pain. And since misery loves company and the majority rules, the unbelieving majority were beginning to persecute the believing the clean minority, the clean living Christians, and maligning them um, and persecuting them. And so Peter goes on to explain this in verses 3 through 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So Peter's audience is suffering primarily because they have ceased from sin as a coping mechanism in this life. Doesn't mean they never sin, they've just ceased from sin in that way. They've tried it, they already know it doesn't work, now they've turned to Jesus instead and found joy and freedom and life in Jesus. But they're getting intense blowback from their culture that was still wrapped up in sensuality and drunken parties and sexual brokenness and idolatry. These early Christians are suffering persecution primarily because they have ceased from using sin as a coping mechanism, which is exactly what Peter means when he writes here, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And there probably wasn't much these early Christians could do about it. Yes, the persecution they were experiencing was was unjust. They weren't hurting anybody. But Roman law didn't protect them. It didn't uphold religious freedom. In fact, it worked against it. Those who were maligning them and inflicting suffering on them would not be held accountable by any kind of earthly authorities, which is why Peter shifts his his line of thinking to what he talks about in the next verse, in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're maligning you, but they're going to have to answer to a higher authority. Hey, Jesus followers, Peter says, don't worry about um, unbelievers treating treating you in, in this way, maligning you. Just keep loving like Jesus. Don't fight back. Don't return evil for evil. Remember, their actions will be judged one day, and God is the one who holds people accountable, not you. And then we come to verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And right here is another one of those really difficult verses in 1 Peter. 
um, that's hard to understand. You know, it's, I find it rather humorous that in his second epistle in Second Peter, which I'm actually going to jump into after First Peter, in, in his second epistle, Peter sort of makes a jab at the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and, and he says that um, Paul writes some things in his letters that are very difficult to understand, which um, some people twist and, and try to make them mean what they don't mean. And, and I, I kind of laugh at that because Peter is just as difficult to understand, if not more so, particularly in places like this one. Some have tried to relate this verse back to the, some, some of the difficult verses that, that Levi covered last week um, in trying to interpret them. But most commentators now interpret um, this verse as the, the, new, the uh, new International Version translates it, which I think is correct. And the NIV says this, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even the, to those who are now dead. The tense of the, the, the Greek verb there lends towards that. The gospel was preached to those who are now dead. See, see, many Christians in the first century had put their faith in Jesus and then were beginning to die, which was perhaps unexpected when they were given the promise that you believe in Jesus and you're given eternal life. And so one of the, the things that the early apostles had to do is, is with the problem of, oh, what, what about people who have passed away after putting their, their faith in Jesus? And I think this is Peter addressing that issue. Um, this is the reason the gospel was preached to even those who are now dead. In other words, the gospel was preached to them while they were still alive. They believed it, then passed away. And even though they might be judged now uh, one way by the world, now that they're dead, they are alive in the spirit because they have eternal life. It's probably the best way to read this verse. So that wraps up Peter's instructions on what not to do in the face of suffering. In summary, don't go back to sinning. Don't go back to the, the ways of the world, how, how the world typically numbs pain and medicates. If you do, you may get relief from the persecution that you're getting from the unbelievers around you, but it's only a temporary fix. In the long run, it only multiplies pain and suffering, hurts other people, and leads to judgment and death. So if sinning is what we shouldn't do in the face of suffering, what should we do? And Peter goes on to tell us what a life of serving looks like in verses 7 through 11. So let's dive in there. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And again, Peter's saying here, don't numb the pain through sensuality. Be self-controlled. Don't medicate the suffering through drunkenness. Be sober-minded. Why? So that you can pray. So how do you live a life of serving amidst suffering? First of all, a life of serving begins with prayer. How did Jesus face suffering when he was here on earth? He prayed. He said, Father, I need your help. You know, he prayed all the time. He, he was very consistent with his prayer life, asking God the Father for help and guidance. And if he needed to pray, how much more do we we? God in the flesh needed to pray while he was here on earth. How much more so do we? He prayed so much that the only thing the disciples ever asked him to teach them how to do was to pray. Master, will you teach us how to pray? As John taught his disciples. I think the reason they asked him that question, because every time Jesus went missing and the disciples were looking for him, where's Jesus? I don't know. Where's he? Oh, he's over there. They found him praying. Lord, teach us to pray. If we're going to serve instead of sin, we need to humbly ask for help. 
because we can't do it in and of our own strength. Now, I skipped over a phrase at the beginning of verse 7 where Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, okay? The world is coming to an end, basically. And I know what some of you are probably thinking. Wasn't this letter written like 2,000 years ago? How on earth can Peter say that the end of all things is imminent and is at hand? Well, over and over again in the Bible... um, It talks about the last days as being the time between the advents of Jesus, between the first coming of Jesus some 2,000 years ago and the second coming of Jesus, which is still yet to come. And that time period in between is always called the last days or often called these last days. And um, Jesus could come back at any moment. And you might think that 2,000 years is a long time, but as Peter reminds us in his second epistle that we're going to look at after 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, with, that with the Lord one day is as a 1,000 years and as 1,000 years is as one day. An eternal God views time a bit differently than we do as finite beings. In God's time zone, it's only been like two days since Jesus has been away. And part of what Jesus taught his disciples to pray for when he taught them how to pray was what? That God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. My friends, that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And it could happen at any moment. So don't waste your time sinning. Get busy serving. And as kingdom citizens, defog the glass for people. Show them a glimpse of what life is going to be like in the kingdom of God when Jesus comes back by serving them and loving them, stepping into ugly places and bringing beauty, stepping into brokenness and bringing healing, moving towards injustice and bringing justice. That's what we're to do as Jesus followers, my friends. Jesus said, you will know that you are my, others will know that you are my disciples by how you're able to own people on social media with your arguments. No. People will know that you are my disciples by your love, love. A life of serving begins with prayer. Secondly, a life of serving prioritizes love. How do I know? Well, let's look at Peter's command in verse 8 together. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, if you numb the pain of suffering by turning towards self-serving sin, all you will do is multiply pain, hurt, and suffering, not only in your own life, but in the lives of those around you that care about you. The people closest to you will get caught up in the backwash of that. But self-giving love pulls in exactly the opposite direction, or as Peter puts it, love covers what? Love covers a multitude of of sins. Instead of leading to more hurt and pain, earnestly loving one another leads to redemption and healing. Hurt people don't have to hurt people, in other words, Peter is saying here. Hurt people can help people. But my friends, loving one another is so countercultural. Not only was it countercultural in Peter's day, it's countercultural now in our culture where our whole economy is built around polarization and stoking fear and rage so that we hate the other rather than love the other. That's how social media is making money. It's how politicians are getting elected. 
It's how news networks are getting viewers and advertising dollars that go with them. The whole system has to have you angry or it goes bankrupt. It falls apart. And what breaks my heart as a pastor is that church members, Jesus followers, people who claim the name Christian, which was originally a derogatory term that meant little Christs by uh, uh, non-Christians in the first century. And it's a moniker that just stuck with us. People who claim the name, yeah, I'm a Christian, are getting sucked into this. Getting sucked into ideological camps that vilify and hate the other. And perhaps the greatest challenge for a Jesus follower living in America today is to avoid getting sucked into ideologies ideologies that are contrary to the gospel. What's an ideology, you might ask? Well, just simply look to the left or right in our political system. Politics is the new religion in America. It's why people are getting so passionate about it. It's what people are looking to for salvation and to fix things in life in some form or fashion. If we just had that person in power or just had that person in power, then everything would be okay. It's a false religion, really. It's looking to a savior in the wrong place. And it doesn't matter what side you're on because here's the truth. Both sides are antithetical to the gospel in some form or fashion. I might get some angry emails about this later, but bring them, okay? The right would hate Jesus because of all of his race and justice talk. The left would hate Jesus because of all of his sexual purity talk. And if you have more allegiance to a political ideology than you have to the good news of the gospel that's found in Jesus Christ, you're going to lose your influence in the world. You'll be sucked into hating and vilifying people that you should be praying for and earnestly loving. You'll spend more time on social media platforms trying to own and destroy people with your ideological arguments than you will on building genuine relationships with your neighbors and your fellow believers. Loving people like Jesus has loved you. You'll be more about hurting people than you'll be about helping people. But Jesus calls us to live differently. Jesus calls us to prioritize love. Life of serving begins with prayer. Life of serving prioritizes love. Thirdly, a life of serving willingly hosts. Let's look at verse nine together where we get that one. Verse nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, now this instruction from Peter, at first, like, I was thinking, about, why would he throw that in there, you know? Hospitality, really? That, I mean, prayer and love just seem so big. But hospitality? Why, why that? But one of the best ways, you think about it, one of the best ways to eliminate, or alleviate, not eliminate, alleviate suffering and hurt in this world is through an open door, Right? An open door that invites people into your home, into your life, feeds them a meal, cries with them, laughs with them, loves them. But in the middle of suffering and pain, what's our natural tendency? You know, we tend to grab our family, get inside, shut the door, lock it. Because a closed door keeps you safe, or at least that's our perception. But Peter says, don't you go shutting your doors. A shut door is a shut heart. Open your homes. Invite people over. Invest in relationships. 
This is why our city groups are so important. I'm looking forward to those starting back up again in the fall. I want to encourage you, if you're not in a group, in a community that's intentionally seeking to love each other, get in a group this year. You're exiles on earth experiencing suffering, but don't hide from the big bad world. Don't lock your doors and play it safe. Host one another. Have meals together. Throw parties. Invite your neighbors that don't know Jesus. Spend time with them. People need to belong oftentimes before they believe. They need to see that it's real and not just hypocritical like they often see. Unfortunately, that label of hypocrite has often been earned by those who claim the name of Christ. I love what he also puts in. He says, don't grumble about it. <laughs> he just kind of throws that in. Show hospitality without grumbling. It's like he's, he's read my mind a little bit when, I, when we're thinking about having people over. Do we really need to have them over? Ah, oh, it's so much work to clean the house. Got a vacuum. It's, they stay so late. His jokes aren't even funny. So many dishes. It's too much work. Peter says, knock it off. Be hospitable. No grumbling. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, of God's grace in its various forms. So a life of serving begins with prayer. A life of serving prioritizes love. A life of serving willingly hosts. And finally, a life of serving multiplies God's grace. It multiplies God's grace. In the midst of suffering, we must remember that God has given each one of us a gift that is meant to be used to extend his grace to others. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Bible teaches that God's spirit now indwells you and now empowers you with a specific giftedness that you are to use in the lives of the people around you. Theology 101, right there. Instead of hoarding our resources in self-preservation in the face of suffering, we are to be conduits of God's grace to others, to each other as fellow believers, to multiply blessing and mitigate suffering. That's what God calls us to. Every single believer in Jesus is uniquely gifted for that by the Spirit of God that indwells us. We are entrusted as stewards, as agents of God's grace to the lives of those around us. And Peter goes on to define the two main categories in which God has gifted us in verse 11. Let's read that together. Verse 11. Go and read this out loud with me. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And right here, Peter gives these two main categories, speaking and serving. You know, some of us are good at speaking, giving wisdom, encouraging one another, counseling one another, teaching, affirming one another. And when we speak, our speech should be full of the word of God, or as Peter puts it, the oracles of God. Others of us aren't so adept at speaking. We get tongue-tied. But we're really good at serving. We thrive behind the scenes in ministry. Assisting with tangible needs, giving money or resources, setting the table, Holding the babies, running production, fixing broken things, arriving at 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings to set up pipe and drape, which is the will of God for your life. Go see Levi at the Connect Point. 
And when we serve, we should do it with God's strength and not ours. Now, the pushback that I often hear as a pastor on this point is this. You know, if I only knew my giftedness, Mark, then I would serve. If I only knew how God had gifted me, then I, would, I, I could do that. But that's backwards, my friends. It's backwards. Start serving and you'll discover your gift. You'll discover that God's grace throws, flows through you in some ways more effectively than others. You know, if you had told me when I was a college student that a majority of my ministry would come through speaking, I would have thought you were one fry short of a Happy Meal. I really would have. You know, my freshman speech class was ugly. It really was. I remember being so cotton-mouthed and my knees literally knocking together. It was, not, it was not just a figure of speech. They were literally, I was so nervous, I was shaking. And yet the more God's Spirit empowered me to do it and more practice I got, I started realizing, you know, I think this is a giftedness that God has given me for the edification of his body, for the encouragement of the church. You don't figure out your gift, then start serving. It's the other way around. You start serving, and then you figure out your gift. God will show you. And we've all been gifted as stewards of God's grace to serve one another. God dispenses his grace through his people. Did you hear that? Say that out loud with me. God dispenses his grace through his people. And if you aren't serving, if you aren't using your gift, you are depriving your church family, your neighborhood, your sphere of influence of God's grace that's meant to flow through you to the rest of us. A life of serving begins with prayer. A life of serving prioritizes love. A life of serving willingly hosts. A life of serving multiplies grace. As the worship team comes back up, let me close with a question. Where did Peter get these radical ideas? Where did he come up with stuff like this? Prayer, love, hospitality, giving. Well, he got these ideas from Jesus himself. Think about it. When Jesus suffered, he faced it with self-control and sobriety. He prayed all night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He threw all of his trust in his Father. said, I can't do this on my own, Father. But not my will, your will be done. And when he was betrayed and abandoned and wrongfully accused and mercilessly, merciless, uh, you get the word, mercilessly, Thank you. (laughs) Being unjustly crucified, shamefully mocked. What did he do? Did he fight back? Did he lash out? No, he didn't lash out. He loved. He prayed. He loved. He loved us so earnestly, he went to the cross the next day to die in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. The wrath of God that we deserved, he took on himself so that we wouldn't have to face it, so that when Jesus Christ comes back, we can face him as a friend and not a judge. He loved us with a love that covered a multitude of sins. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We need the same attitude as his followers. He died and rose again and now in glory. 
he sits, where he is preparing a place for us, opening his home in the ultimate cosmic hospitality. Without a hint of grumbling, at the cost to bring us home. And Jesus, the greatest gift of God's grace, serves, ever, leave, ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus prayed, He loved, shows hospitality, and is the ultimate embodiment of God's grace. And he calls us to follow him, to be like him, to love like him, to give ourselves like him. And when we do that, when we follow the servant-hearted way of Jesus in radical self-donation, we display and magnify the glory of God throughout time and eternity to a world that's looking for love in all the wrong places. As Peter puts it here at the end of verse 11, in order, let's say this out loud with me, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, apart from your help, we cannot do this. We cannot love like Jesus. We cannot serve like Jesus. We cannot show hospitality like Jesus. We need your help. Our natural tendency is to run our hellbound race indifferent to the cost. But you looked upon our helpless state. You led us to the cross, Lord. Where we beheld your love displayed as Jesus suffered in our place. Where he bore the wrath reserved for us. And now all we know is grace. Amen. As is our custom, there's going to be some um, discussion questions to process on your way out. I'll talk about them on the way home with your friends, with your family. Um, if you're still meeting a city group this summer, you can use these in your city group. I want to draw your attention to the last one. What is one thing? What is one thing that you can do this week to pray, love, host, or serve, or all of the above? What's one thing you can do this week? We don't come to church. We are the church. The church is not a building. It's a people. You are the living proof of a loving God. You're the only Bible many people in our community will read. So go in his grace and in his, in his love and be like Jesus this week. Be his hands and feet. You're dismissed.